Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Good Question Podcast. My guest is James DeFrancesco, PhD. He's the director of the Forensic Science Program, part of the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. He's a senior lecturer, part of the Forensic Science Program. Uh, all this is happening at Loyola University in Chicago. So we're going to talk about uh, forensics and you know nasty things like fentanyl and some of the new opioids that are out there and uh, what he's seeing and what they're doing. So welcome, James. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Yeah, tell me a bit about your history and then how you got into this you know, the current state you're in, and, and then we'll go into the work that you're doing right now. Sure. So currently, obviously, I'm at the university, but prior to that, I've had about a 34-year career in law enforcement and also in industrial chemistry. Prior to starting at Loyola in 2015, I spent 18 years as a forensic chemist at the DEA, Drug Enforcement Administration in Chicago, and I analyzed dope. That's what I did and testified in court. And then when needed, also supported agents out in the field. That's sort of the, the big three duties for a forensic chemist. Well, when you say dope, uh, what what kind of drugs were you working on? And, you know, I ask you some questions around those. Yeah, pretty much any type of controlled substance. So anything that's controlled at the federal level, and that's all defined by the Controlled Substance Act. So we're talking heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, LSD, PCP, marijuana. Uh, methamphetamine. Oh, so what were some of the interesting things that you found? Um, you know, were there different uh, strengths and types of these drugs? And, you know, what were they mixed with? Like, what, what are some of the interesting things that came up? Yeah, absolutely. It, I would say one of the more interesting things was watching the evolution of some of the newer drugs coming online. Back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, people were using GHB which is eventually known as the date rape drug. And uh, prior to 2000, I believe it, it was controlled under Clinton. So it was either late 99, 2000, when the Control Act ha- happened. And before that, people were using straight GHB. Then after it was controlled, people switched to precursor drug that essentially turned into GHB in the body. And you could sort of see the, the, the transition from the one to the other. And then the same thing years later with fentanyl replacing heroin. You know, an idea just, well, not a good idea, but an idea just came to mind. So people have made drugs knowing, let's say, that someone will eat something or a reaction will come in the body that will activate the drug into the form they want. Because if if they were able to do such a thing, you might be able to get past, you know, regulation and the law. You know, if you're able to, again, if someone can take precursors and you know they'll combine in the body and let's say you have a grapefruit or something and it'll activate everything and they'll get the effects of the drug that they want, but it'll look like they're just having innocent you know, precursor compounds that wouldn't be flagged by the DEA, et cetera. Yeah, you just had the uh, lightning bolt of uh, intellectual curiosity that's uh, that's happened uh, in the past. So that's exactly what's happened. People have found that they can take some of the precursors. Now, it doesn't work for every drug. There are certain precursors that have to be worked up in a laboratory and you have to do intentional 
chemical transformations in order to make them happen. But there are certain drugs, they're known as prodrugs in the pharmaceutical industry. So the drug the, the component itself does not have drug activity. That is, it won't won't bind to certain receptors, but in the body, the enzymes will convert it into something else that is the drug. As a matter of fact, heroin is known as a pro-drug. Heroin itself does not really have drug activity. It has to get into the body and let the enzymes act on it, which it happens very quickly, and then it turns into something that is is quite active. Yeah, I remember for years thinking, wow, if someone could um, create a marijuana strain that had no smell, that would be a gigantic blockbuster, because that seems, at least for marijuana, one of the main ways that uh, you know it's discovered. Now I know they have vape pens and all this other stuff that they've kind of gotten around it. It's become like a hardcore drug, but... Uh, just an interesting thought I had, I guess. Yeah. Well, the, the drug industry is pretty interesting. I've seen a lot of parallels with just the way just legitimate products are are developed and sold. Uh, you know, people tend to have high brand loyalty with just legitimate products. If it's a, a drink that you want or a certain candy bar, and the same happens in the drug world. In the drug world, oftentimes in the packaging, there will be certain iconography or certain types of uh, printing on there, and it, it's essentially a, a form of branding. Yeah, I've seen on, I don't know what pill it was that I took, but there were tiny little numbers inscribed on it, and the pill was scored in the middle, but not all the way through. So I wonder if how sophisticated drug manufacturers are, if they're at that level where they can do like microprinting on the pills to make sure that it, people know it's their brand and have those kinds of features. Oh, absolutely. So something like MDMA, ecstasy, is just known for just sort of the ultimate branding because they stamp out the tablets just like any other legitimate pharmaceutical company would stamp out tablets using the same type of machinery. And they're able to use uh, certain punches in order to get impressions on there. And so if they want to have, you know, whatever, it could be a smiley face, it could be almost anything. I've testified in cases where the uh, tablets were stamped DEA and I had to explain to, <laughs> explain to the jury they weren't ours. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, actually, that came to mind, too. You know, let's say, uh, I don't know, a version of uh, Adderall or something has a, a 4125 or a lot number stamped on it. Have drug makers done that where they, they emulated the color and texture and markings on regular pills, you know, ibuprofen or whatever it may be, so that, it, you know, if they're found, people think, oh, it's just ibuprofen or it's just regular pills and not... Uh, yeah, well, counterfeit tablets have been huge in the drug abuse industry for years. Going back, to, well, it's been going back for many years, but most recently, about 10, 15 years ago, um, OxyContin tablets on the uh, street were actually, um, instead of having OxyContin in them, they would have fentanyl or fentanyl analog. A lot of benzodiazepines, too, stuff like, uh, you know, um, Alprazolam, uh, Diazepam, all these these tablets, they're, they're, they're starting to be laced with all sorts of mixtures of drugs. Yeah, you know, what's the point in doing that? Is it malicious? And in some cases, it's it's just to mask what the actual drug is. Like, why would you know? Is it efforts by China to kill our people or something by putting fentanyl on everything or Mexico? Like, wh why does this happen? I would say it's a host of issues, and it's sort of the issues are sort of particular for one case versus another. It could be try concealment efforts. They're trying to transport drugs that make it look like they're legitimate drugs from, you know, they could even have legitimate packaging and trying to get through an international border. You know, just replacing something like heroin with fentanyl initially happened, and these and fentanyl was coming across the uh, U.S. border. Uh, it was pretty, pretty ingenious because this is a drug that the dogs are not trained on. And so, and it's about 40 times more potent than heroin. 
So from an economic standpoint, you think about if you're a drug trader, it's like, why would I ship, you know, 40 kilograms of heroin when I can ship one kilogram of fentanyl and there's going to be um, lower scrutiny at the border? Right. But do you think that they know that it's killing people? Do they care? Like, you know, how do they know it's going to be handled properly once it gets past the border or the people that make it get their payment, they could care less? I think it's, it's mostly the latter. But in order to have good business and a continual supply chain and not to piss off your, you know, the, your distributors that you sell to, why would they do that? I would think that there would be quality control and, you know, they won't want to preserve this cash this pipeline of cash. Or do they just feel like, ah, we'll just kill anyone that says anything and we're going to put out whatever we want. We don't care. You know, that's a really, really good question. And a, a lot of people have struggled with that. I think that probably the business is just so segmented. That there's no there's no one overseeing authority for something like this that's going to be watching their product, you know, no pun intended here from but from cradle to grave. And so it's everybody wants to get their cut and they just each point of distribution, everybody operates the business pretty much the way they want. And the money is the bottom line. But are there any pseudo virt not even virtuous, but just just good business people in the drug world? Like have you seen some drug dealers, some manufacturers that have really good practices or like best practices where they do have quality control. They do care. I mean, again, they're not doing a good thing, of course, but from the perspective of being a good business person, have you seen that come out in the product of any of these drug makers? Not the way you're, you would probably think, but it's definitely in the best interest of the drug dealer to not kill their clients. They want to get them possibly a near death experience, but not kill them. Near death? Oh, you mean like the most intense high possible without killing? Well, exactly. That's what users are always chasing. That's a very grim, grim thing. It's a grim industry. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Well, let's let's dive into the forensic part of it. So when, where, and how do forensics come into play with uh, drug use and distribution and manufacturing? So the Drug Enforcement Administration, I'm just going to go back to the DEA because that's, you know, pretty much my, you know, my professional experience in forensic science. I mean, the DEA was created in the early 1970s, I believe 1973 under uh, President Nixon. And it's a, it's a little bit unusual in that it is a one law agency that enforces one law, and that's the Controlled Sub Substance Act. Whereas a lot of other federal agencies, FBI probably enforces hundreds, if not thousands of laws, and you can go up and down different enforcement agencies. So the DEA is very, very focused, and obviously it's the largest entity out there that does law, uh, drug enforcement. Every state has got their own crime labs and their own form of drug enforcement, even at the local level. But everybody pretty much looks to the DEA for um, for you know guidance and, and sort of an example. So and so because of that, 
the, the sort of the core employees of DEA are the agents on the enforcement side and then the chemists, the scientists on the, on the laboratory side, because you need the scientists in order to test the materials and then testify in court as to their identity and to do it to a high scientific certainty. What are some typical or memorable situations in which you were involved in testing, categorizing, you know, using forensic science to determine what the drugs are and other factors about them, maybe where they were made, et cetera? Going back to 2005, 2006, I was involved in an investigation where fentanyl was popping up on the streets, most frequently in Chicago, but then it hit in a number of Midwestern towns and Midwestern cities, and then got out as far east even as, as New Jersey. And it was one of probably a handful of fentanyl episodes that have happened over the last 30, 35 years. And, but this one was centered in Chicago. And so we were analyzing what we thought were heroin exhibits coming into the laboratory. And sure enough, very small amounts of fentanyl started showing up. And this is sort of, sort of gets me back to that sort of product evolution. And that is you could sort of see over time that the exhibits would come in as nearly pure heroin with a little bit of fentanyl. And then as time would go on, it would get to about a 50-50 mix, and then it would be it would transition into pure fentanyl. And I think it was a, a matter of the distributors uh, testing the product, and that, that turns out to be exactly what they were doing, and then trying to figure out what their the end consumer could uh, tolerate. But anyhow. Okay, so they started putting it in. They're like, all right, we'll put in more and more. Yeah, and the same thing happened about yeah. five years prior with GHB. And some other precursor, uh, other analog chemicals, namely with something called GBL and then 1,4-butane diol. But anyhow, get back to fentanyl. So, well, quick question here. So, what'll happen is you'll see, I guess, I don't know, but in all cases, but you'll see a drug mixed in maybe with a common or an existing one. The dosage will ramp up to the point where, let's say, it starts killing people, and then what they back it off to a sweet spot where it's almost killing people or only killing a few, and then they get keep selling it. Absolutely. That's well, that's good business in the drug trade. Jesus. All right. Well, please, please continue with the fentanyl. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. So we do the chemical analysis on something like fentanyl. Now, unlike heroin, that's a semi-synthetic that the, the major component of that comes from the opium poppy, then there's a relatively simple chemical reaction that gets it to heroin. So it's considered really more naturally derived. Fentanyl comes straight from a laboratory. It's all synthetic. There is no fentanyl plant out there that you can grow in your garden and pick. All right. So because it's synthesized, there is a certain chemical route. And when chemistry happens, oftentimes there are these little like breadcrumbs that are left behind, little byproducts, little chemical markers that would indicate the route, the chemical route of the synthesis. And so what we were seeing was little markers that indicated that this was not coming from a pharmaceutical source. It wasn't being diverted from pharmacies or a, a large pharmaceutical plant. This was actually being made clandestinely. Oh, interesting. So each reaction will have, it's not 100% conversion, so you always get side products. So exactly. by looking at those products, you can tell, oh, they use this condensation, whatever reaction to get to this point. Yeah, very good. I like the condensation throw in there. It might be one thing that popped up in my brain from like the college chemistry. Let's <laughs> nope. deal with all the reaction. And okay. All right. Well. All right, very good. Although no deals alder, no deals alder on this one. Yeah, it's just like I said, random stuff that was stuck in my head. From yeah, yeah, no, that's great. You, uh, you get where I'm going, right? Yeah, that's really cool that you can do that. I didn't realize that. Yeah, we started looking at data that we had at the federal level, and then we started because of the local problem. We started taking a look at 
data that was happening at the local level. We took looking at data that was happening at the state lab, and we started digging in, and we spent, we saw sort of going back, we sort of tracked exactly when this started, and then realized that, hey, we have a clandestine source out there, and then the investigation was sort of in full swing at that point. This is late 2005, early 2006. The special agents I worked with, just a fabulous bunch of people, identified a laboratory in Mexico. And then we went down there. I actually went down there myself to help process the laboratory. Oh, wow. What was that experience like? Eerie or what What did you see? Um, It was interesting. I was sort of treated as like, sort of like tourists. There was not much. I mean, there was a good deal of protection there, but I just sort of went down there. I actually went down there with a piece of instrumentation in order to collect high quality data to send it back to the prosecuting attorneys in Chicago so that they could set up their prosecution and try to extradite the individual who was running the lab down in Mexico. Yeah. Well, what do you see in terms of the uh, sophistication of what are the cartels and these different uh, organizations? I guess they hire their own chemists and they say, all right, how do we make this a different way or how do we make this stronger or like who makes and innovates and iterates these products? It would have to be a business decision by the cartels. Yeah, This particular lab was extremely well run. So they, unfortunately, they probably have, I guess, like experienced chemists that are there under pain of death to, you know, to make new compounds and things like that, right? Either by carrot or stick. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, again, like what's the level of sophistication in terms of the the chemistry abilities? Is it incredibly high or is it more like rudimentary? Yeah, this particular lab was pretty high. I was pretty impressed. It it looked like a quasi-official laboratory. It had nice glassware equipment. It was, uh, had protocols. So it was, uh. They had a pretty nice marker board with chemical structures, so it was pretty well run. Now, clandestine laboratories that we tend to find in the U.S., especially like a methamphetamine laboratory, those tend to be pretty low-buck events. You know, we're talking, you know, mom and power, we used to call them Beavis and Butthead labs. And so, yeah, that's, you know, making it up in your bathtub, mason jars and wooden spoons. Have you been to ones that have uh, exploded or things went terribly wrong and killed the people making it or... We usually come in after the boom. Right, right. But I mean, have you been on scenes like that where the whole thing went horribly wrong and everything blew up literally? Well, no. And that's one of the reasons why chemists are specifically trained at the DEA to investigate clandestine laboratories is to go in and dismantle them. So the protocol is that the agents identify the laboratories. Once they realize it's sort of it's a chemistry situation, then they call in the trained chemists and the trained chemists then pretty much sort of called most of the shots after that in terms of how to dismantle, what to turn on, what to turn off, all sorts of stuff. Okay. Very interesting. Well, I guess one more idea came to mind. For a given chemical like fentanyl, do you have a counter lab that is deliberately trying to find more pathways to synthesize it that maybe aren't even known yet or aren't out there? It's kind of like, you know, the gain of function research that they do with viruses, unfortunately. You know, does the DEA do that to try to get ahead of, uh, you know, these new creations that are, that you know, could come out? Not necessarily. Just by definition, law enforcement tends to be reactionary. And what we've learned over time, too, is that you can't necessarily predict what the next trend is going to be. And so it's a little bit of a fool's ear and to try to launch any significant research trying to figure out where the next hot spot is going to pop up. Uh, These things just sort of happen and you have to react. Hmm, Okay. And you're talking specifically from the good the good guy side, right? Yeah, right. On the good guy side, is there that? So I remember, I think it was like 2008, Spice and K2 and all that stuff was really big, like in the smoke shop world. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, from what I heard, I guess they would just change one molecule and, uh, you know, change one bond or whatever it was. So the chemical is almost analogous. It's still at similar effects, but now it wasn't officially or specifically on the DEA's list. So mostly people could get around it and still sell it. Yeah. So the time you're talking about is probably the early 2010s, maybe 10 to 11, maybe 12, maybe a little bit earlier than that. It was two trends happening at the same time. One was spice K2, and then the other one was the bath salts. And I'm not sure if you remember those. Yeah, I've heard about them and people like eating each other's face off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The uh, zombie attack. Yeah. So the spice came about by people taking just normal plant material. And actually, they would find plant material that looked a lot like bud, you know, a lot like weed. And they would spray it with compounds that were actually tested at the university level about 15, 20 years prior. And they, they were, those compounds were actually developed to test the binding efficiency of uh, cannabinoids that are naturally occurring in the cannabis plant um, and tried to chemically modify them and change that binding and understand how the receptors work. So, of course, fast forward 20 years later, the knuckleheads get a hold of these compounds, spray them on you know any type of plant material, then sell it as spice, as, as fake marijuana or legal marijuana. So how often does that go on? Like... Are there certain drugs where it's like, you know, fentanyl, we're never really going to be able to sell this legally, so we don't care to do that, you know, and avoid the DEA. But other ones, they're skirting the edge, I guess, and then they do play that game, right? Um, No, I mean, fentanyl had its analogs, too, that came in without in control status. So it was probably at least around 10 years ago. It was you know, probably closer to 15 years ago. It was acetyl fentanyl. Very small modification on fentanyl, but it came into the United States, I think mostly through Canada. This affected the Northeast a great deal. It had no control status in the United States. Okay. And so, in, in a lot of that ended up in these, uh, ox, these fake OxyContin tablets on the street. And then uh, eventually law enforcement caught up to it and it became controlled soon after that. Is that a, is that a real defense? Um, you know, if you're caught with, I don't know, 10,000 pills of, of whatever it is and, uh, you know, it's it's ninety nine percent close to a molecule that's illegal, but it's slightly different. Does that get you off, or is that just like a an urban legend and BS? So going back in time to the nineteen eighties, there were a lot of designer drugs out there, and this was like during the phase of ecstasy, MDA, MDMA, and P, and the chemists were doing one small modification at, at at a time. And what law enforcement up until that point did was they would specifically control certain compounds, and so. They would control a compound, and then the chemist would change it, and then they'd have to go through the process of controlling it again. By the time that process got all the way through, which could have been 12 to 18 months, the bad guys were out to a new compound. So back in the 1980s, probably late 80s, early 90s, the, the law was passed at the federal level called the analog law. And the analog law said he had three main prongs, said that if a substance is substantially similar in chemical structure to a schedule one or two substance. Prong two said that if it's it's substantially similar in the effect on the body of a schedule one or two substance. And then the third prong was if it was sold as a replacement for a schedule one or two, that it could be prosecuted as either a schedule one or two substance. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And then that law was used in the early 2000s to go after a lot of these GHB analogs. Did it work? Did it hold up? Yeah, and I testified in a good deal of those cases. So what were some of the criteria to say, like, this is an analog versus, like, this is just a naturally occurring chemical, or it's it's different enough where you can't really say it's an analog of this drug? Well, if the arguments would be made in court, and what we would do from the prosecution side is to set up where we had 
a chemist addressed prong number one, which was strictly chemistry. We had either a toxicologist or a biochemist come in and testify on prog number two, which was uh, the, uh, substantially similar in the effect on the body. And then we would have the agent come in for the third prong in terms of, was this represented as a replacement for the other one? And then there, there's sort of one other sort of fourth-ish type prong was that was this intended for human consumption? That had to be part of it too. Okay. Yeah. And, and those are pretty those were tough cases to prosecute. And so there was a, a great deal of resources going to each one. So each one was, was sort of considered pretty carefully before I went forward. But was the law really useful and helpful? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we established precedent pretty much throughout the United States, almost every district. And we had to pr- basically do that district by district. Oh, wow. Yeah. Might as well get all these things out. You know, what if, you know, you're going to make, I don't know, fentanyl, let's say, and you had big chem labs make the precursors and they get shipped into the United States. And let's say the precursors look like, you know, normal, reasonable chemicals that are the precursors for many different things. And then in the States, you had a lab that put them together and did the final post-production, I guess, to make the drug. Is that like a viable path that some of these uh, dealers use? Not for fentanyl. It could happen possibly for something in the future, but law enforcement's pretty much on top of that type of stuff. And so if you take a look at the laws, the drug laws not only put controls in place for the drugs themselves, but also for the pre- for certain precursors, key precursor. For example, there was years ago, I had an agent ask me to advise him on a case and he was investigating it and he sent me pictures. And he sent me pictures and he says, hey, I think I've got an MDMA case here. So I went through the pictures. I went through the list of, of materials he had there. And I said, I'm seeing everything here for a typical MDMA lab, but I don't see the key precursor. And he said, well, can't we just go ahead and still prosecute? And I said, no, you can't because you need that precursor. You can't make MDMA. And so I told him, I said, you essentially have, you've got chicken soup without the chicken. Okay. Assuming chickens were controlled. Okay. Yep. So again, on the forensic side, like what more is there to the science that you think needs to be done to help you and other people like you identify these drugs and and combat them? Like, what are some of the, you know, we're not giving away proprietary stuff. What are some of the new methods or things that are needed or desired or being worked on? Well, from a practical standpoint, forensic scientists operate like any other scientist. We apply the same scientific principles, same scientific method to everything we do. We just happen to do it in a forensic context, in a legal context. So uh, the work that we do has to survive scrutiny in court. So we just have, we do probably more testing than most, you know, research scientists would necessarily do in identifying certain things. We just have to have a, a pretty, a pretty good story going into court. And we get a, a great deal of support. I mean, the DEA is very well funded. Most state laboratories are pretty well funded, even local laboratories. So I don't know if that was sort of the aim of your question. No, I mean, like in the hardcore science end, you know, I don't know what you can talk about, but what are some of the new, I don't know, initiatives in chemistry to, to advance, you know, the good guys side of the ledger more and fire, you know, push back like, where is the arms race critical in the need to develop new technologies, new methods in order to you know to fight the drugs coming in? Well, there's you know we're always exploring different types of methodologies for analyzing, but the the trick is always going into court, and you have to be careful to make sure that you're using techniques that are generally accepted within the scientific community. And so if you walk into court with some relatively new technique, it's going to have to go through pretty high scrutiny. There's going to be evidentiary hearings and pre-trial, well, not pre, well, pre-trial hearings as to the admissibility of that evidence. So we tend to be a little bit more on the conservative side and use techniques that are very well 
already established within the scientific community. If I think that that's sort of what you're you're getting at, right? Yeah. Again, I just didn't know. Again, there's a you know there's other other things that need to be developed to there to adequately combat these things. So that's what I was wondering. Well, I mean, you know, there there, there could always be strategies, but again, we we can't. I think law enforcement has somewhat l- learned its lesson in trying to predict what the next area of drug abuse is going to be. You can look at trends. You know, something that sort of concerns me is that. Over time, drugs that are developed for legitimate use, for legitimate medical use that you can get a prescription for, eventually, if there's a potential for abuse there, they'll eventually find them their way to the street. Okay. So something like cocaine, methamphetamine, those are all Schedule II controlled substance, meaning they've got a, a recognized medical use. They were actually developed for medical purposes. And then, of course, they became abused. Over the years, the type of molecules that are um that are produced for pharmaceutical use have gone from relatively small molecules to relatively large biological molecules. And this is pretty well chronicled. There's a research group at University of Arizona that publishes like the top 200 pharmaceuticals by sales each year. And you can see over the last, I think I tracked it recently from 2006 up to around 2022. If you jump about every six years, you see that the top sellers are more and more of these biologics rather than just small molecules, what we would consider a small molecule like cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin. And the the crime labs, and I think eventually these biologicals, some of them will be abused. Okay. I don't know which ones and I don't know what. But when that happens, crime labs are going to be challenged because they are set up to only detect small molecules. So that's going to have to be a transformation. At some point. What's an example of a biological? What what potentially could it make? You know, Humira, Keytruda, Pavlovid, let's see, some of these I can't even, the top selling drugs are these biologics. It's just a matter of where we, the, the drugs of abuse up until now have been compounds that we're very, very familiar with. I think eventually we're going to be getting into this sort of unknown territory. And the first one, and what sort of triggered this in my mind was a number of years ago, we had an exhibit come in and people didn't know exactly what it was. Somebody said it was GHB and they said, no, it's this HGH stuff. Well, it turned out to be human growth hormone, which was not a controlled substance, but it does have obviously drug properties. And we we were baffled as to how to analyze it. We had no idea. None of the instrumentation, none of the techniques we had were capable of making any positive identification as to what it was. Really? No. Yeah. That's just, you know, again, I'm projecting out in the future. I don't know. We're talking 10, 20, even 30 years from now, but I think it's eventually going to happen. You think people would, let's say, I don't know, they'll take a testosterone molecule and add something on it to make it into a drug and the testosterone will carry it into the body. And, you know, there's an active uh, compound or an active group, you know, attached to it that actually has the drug effect. So it's mixing like a biologic with a drug. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or just the biologic itself. Maybe people have found ways, uh, you know, maybe even some side effects that the biologic at a certain concentration can provide hallucinations. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to offer any ideas to anybody, but you can sort of see where the trend is. And, and actually what you described there is sort of grafting one molecule onto another one as a delivery system that's been done before and that that's done in the drug in the legitimate drug industry yeah i've heard like dmso is the solvent that can get stuff past the skin and people years ago we were mixing it yeah. with cocaine so you could have like cocaine applied to the skin all kinds of crazy stuff yeah so yeah those are different sort of like physical delivery systems but you know there's a cancer drug years ago that he had a chemical moiety on it that it looked like it could split off and turn into GHB. And they opined that 
one of the reasons why this was so well tolerated by the body and that it did part of it did metabolize into GHB and then had the effect of GHB, which gave the patient a bit of a, a, a sense of well-being. And so it was a, it was actually a positive side effect. Mm, okay. Well, very good. Where can people learn more about, uh, you know, your work, you know, the real work that goes on? I mean, it, you know, shows on TV, they, people that are in the industry, whatever industry it is, whenever there's a show on TV, they hate that show because it's always so ridiculously unrealistic. So. Yeah. In general, I'm actually very positive in the coverage of forensic science and TVs and in movies. You know, there are certain shows that probably, you know, show forensic scientists who are, you know, too beautiful and, the, you know, the lighting in the laboratory is a little bit too traumatic and the cases get solved a little bit too quickly. But for the most part, exposure of, of our field in that way that actually does help to educate the public. One of the shows that was amazingly accurate was Breaking Bad. Oh, really? Okay. Except for their portrayal of the DEA. Not too happy about that. But in terms of a PhD chemist operating his own drug empire, that was a pretty novel idea. Okay. Well, very good. Again, where can people go to learn more? What resources do you recommend? Well, they can always go to my uh, website uh, at Loyola University Chicago and look at what we do in forensic science. We have a four-year program that is nationally accredited. We offer courses, advanced courses in forensic biology, molecular biology, DNA, toxicology, anthropology, we are a science-based forensic science program, and there are many nationally accredited programs like ours or similar to ours throughout the country. Okay, excellent. Well, James, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed. 